Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together so the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Here is not a story, not simply a story, I should say, this is not a movie. This is not a cartoon. This is history right now. Going back over 2,000 years, almost 3,000. A long time ago, there was a king who was king of the world, really. He was in charge of every nation and province of the known world at that time. The king's name was King Nebuchadnezzar. And as you know from history, the people of Israel at this point had been captured by the people of Babylon. And so they were in a nation that was absolutely wicked. Did all kinds of detestable things, right? I mean, right here, here's a king who's a tyrant who says, you must bow down and worship my image that I've made. So here's a man who just commands people to obey his every whim. If they didn't listen, what does he do? He throws them into the midst of a fiery furnace. Evil man. However, there were three people, or I should say four people that we know of, three people we're going to focus on tonight, that were believers in the one true God, and not just believers in the one true God, but actually served this evil king. How does that work out? It was Daniel, of course, the book of Daniel. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those three are who we, we're going to focus on in this very famous chapter of the Bible. These three men that we're going to focus on were servants in this king's court. How does that work out? I mean, can you imagine working for an evil empire, being under persecution, and serving someone that you didn't believe in? And I think what this shows us right from the get-go is that even though they were in captivity in an evil empire, it was all according to God's plan. In fact, this very thing that Babylon would take over was prophesied about. And the nation that would come after Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, that also was prophesied 
in chapter 2 of Daniel. God knew everything. And, and even if the world looks so dark, don't think that God has given up. A lot of people today look at the world that we live in. I mean, just on the national, national news, you, you have on live TV, a shooter kills two uh, people that work for uh, a news station in Virginia. Right on live TV. We live in an evil, evil time. But don't think that just because there's evil abounding that God isn't working behind the scenes as he was here in the book of Daniel. Also, it shows us how we as Christians can still serve in an evil empire. And we can still shine light in the darkness without compromising the fact that we're light. You see, at some point in time, if you are going to shine your light as a Christian, what I mean by that is you're going to be different, right? All throughout the Bible, you have the people of God are unique, different, holy, set apart from the rest of the world. We're going to be Jesus freaks, misfits. There's going to be times in which people look at you and say, what, what in the world are you? And that's because we shouldn't stand, uh, we shouldn't fit in to a world of darkness if we really have the light of Christ within us. So we could still be in the world, but not of the world. We can serve, we can work in an evil empire and yet still not compromise our light. Some people give up on the government and say, oh, it's all hypocrites. Can't trust any politician. And if they say they're Christian, they're probably lying. Well, you don't know that. How do you know that? Do you know them? Do you know every single politician? No, you don't. It could be possible that they are a Daniel, a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They haven't forgotten who they are in Jesus. And because they served even in this evil nation, check this out, they brought blessing to an entire empire. It's because Joseph was brought, you know, he was sold into slavery and he was brought into Egypt and he was risen up in power in a godless nation that he was able to preserve a whole nation from a time of famine. And so it is with the people of God, we can be the salt of the earth, Jesus said. We can season, we can make it taste good and preserve it if we are submitted to the will of God. But here in this, in this short little passage here, a couple things are happening. You have this image of gold. It talks about cubits. Cubits, remember, is a measurement of someone's arm. And so they estimate this image is about 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Very tall, very skinny. Maybe he was trying to compensate because he thought he was really fat and he's like, I'm going to slim myself down. I don't know. During this time that they were building this and they, they had this image, they also wanted to have simultaneous worship of this golden image. They had all kinds of various instruments, all kinds of music playing. If you don't think music has an influence on you, guess again. Because historically it's always been associated with some kind of worship. Even in Haiti, you know, we're going to bed and there's tribal chants all throughout the night. Eventually got really annoying. Music. Music is designed for worship. In heaven, there's going to be worship. In heaven, there's going to be music. The intended design of music was to give worth to something. And people give worth to all kinds of different things. People write love songs because that's what they're passionate about. 
giving worth to love to a single person. And if I write a song, I mean, like, I've done this before because I write songs. You like, you like somebody, you write them a song, you send it to them. They're like, well, since, you know, you're a hardcore artist and you, you scream and you don't sing, I don't think that's really romantic, you know. And you kind of weird them out, creep them out, and they never talk to you ever again. But you do it. It's, it's the thought that counts, right? So you do it <laughs> intending to show someone worth or value. So be very careful at the music that you listen to. But here you have people worshiping this golden image. And all people worshiped because King Nebuchadnezzar was king of the universe. He could do whatever he want, pretty much. Not really the king of the universe, lowercase king. But here he was in charge, he thought, of the whole world. And so he ordered every single person on the planet that they knew of to worship. People, nations, different languages, it didn't matter. He wanted the world empire, Babylon, to be glorified and himself to be magnified. You look at this and you're like, wow, that's such an ancient primitive thing, right? There's no way that something like that would happen today. No way we'd allow arrogance like that in our day, right? You can put up the first slide. What about this? In North Korea, Kim Jong-un had his father and his grandfather, the founders of his government in North Korea. They had these giant statues, 65 feet tall, and everyone has to bow, everyone has to show it respect. Tyranny. You can take the slide down. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not just something that happened thousands of years ago, but there's still, still arrogance and tyranny happening in our world today. And here's the thing, the fact that you grew up in America was something that God chose, that God predetermined your places, your boundaries, your dwellings. It says in Acts chapter 17, if you want to double check. God designed, created you and placed you here rather than there. And so that's a gift. It's a gift that we don't have to be under that kind of government, under that kind of tyranny. I was in Japan um, about seven years, eight years ago now. And Japan's awesome, by the way. It's probably like a utopia. I mean, everywhere you eat, the food's great. We talked about food before. I'm like, everywhere, it doesn't matter where you go. Just have great Japanese food, great fish, because fish over there is like beef here. It's just really cheap. So it's just like everyone has sushi. Everyone has ramen. It's just amazing. And then we would go and like we stayed in this one spa that's in the side of a cliff. And we're in this hotel. It's like you, you go up this escalator and then you walk down a hallway because you're going into the cliff. And you go up and it's like this hot springs. And it's just, it's amazing. It's like, why doesn't everybody just move here? It's like, oh, wait, we don't speak Japanese. So I guess I can't move here. So that's why I'm here, guys, by the way, if you wanted to know. I'm just kidding. I love America. But Japan's awesome. As I was walking around in Japan, though, there was one particular day, I remember, that I was with my father, and we were walking into this, uh, we were walking by a Shinto temple. And all of us as a group were kind of walking in, and we started walking in, and my dad said he didn't want to go in. And, I was, and so, you know, I didn't want to make a big stink or anything. So it's like, what, what's so bad about going into the temple? My dad just didn't want to go in to this temple where they worship other gods and they have different statues. And I kind of want to look at them. You know, I was just like, look and observe. I remember me and Jared, we, there's like a Hindu temple around the corner 
And we like drove in, we were like observing and like, oh my gosh, this exists. And we're like driving into the woods and responding. like, it was really interesting to me. I just really want to look. And so you got to ask yourself the question, like what, what is so bad? Is, is there anything really that bad about bowing down to a statue? What's so bad about a little bit of compromise here or there? I mean, come on, like if I didn't bow down, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here. Here are these three guys, they're in prominent positions. If they die, that's not beneficial for God. How's God going to be able to do his work if all his people are taken out? So they could have rationalized like, Lord, you know what? Just this one time, I'm just going to bow just five seconds. What? You know, just to show them that I'm on their team, but I'm not, you know, cross my fingers. I'll do something. I'll pretend. I'll compromise here. But really, you and me, we're tight. So it doesn't really matter. You know that. What's so bad about bowing down? Maybe you don't even have to mean it. But here's the problem. If you bow down to what's wrong, you can't stand up for what's right. If you bow down to what's wrong, you cannot stand up for what is right. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Here's the first thing we need to understand today, which is when we bow down to an idol, we are turning our backs on Jesus. When we bow down to an idol, we are turning our backs on Jesus. It's almost like you're saying, you know, a wedding ring is only really a symbol. Imagine you're married and you have a wedding ring on and you're just going to take it off around your single friends because you don't want them to feel like awkward and stuff, you know? Like, I don't want them to be like, oh, you're married and you think you're better than us. So I just take my wedding ring off around my single friends. That's cowardice, isn't it? And in a sense, as Christians, we've made a, a vow that we would not bow to anyone but Christ. We made a decision when we said, Lord, I will follow you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, I want to serve you. Here I am, send me. And then when we compromise, what we're doing is we're saying, and I'm, I just, I'm just kidding. It really is a big deal, isn't it? You know, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, historically have had a couple things to remind them whose, uh, whose people they are. In Deuteronomy, it talks about a passage, or it has a passage where it says about God's word, that these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And from that, the Jewish people, historically, and you'll see it today, uh, depending on what, um, you know, type of, Jewish person you are, you'll have the Teflon and the, the mezuzah. The mezuzah is the doorpost thing. If you've ever been to a Jewish home, you see it right on the doorpost. It's symbolic that God's presence is in this house. And everywhere they go, no matter if they're leaving their house or entering their house, they are reminding themselves that God's presence is here. Pretty cool, actually. We have one at my house because I'm Jewish. And Teflon, and some of you may have seen some Jewish people they have the prayer books on, on their foreheads and they tie it around and they tie around their bicep, a rope, that the word of God is, is bound to them. They have uh, commands, laws on their head. They want it to be in their minds. They thought that was so important to remind themselves of whose they were. 
Even David said, your words I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is so important that we remember to bow before the Lord and nobody else. Remember, Peter was the one who denied Christ. And Peter could rationalize the same thing. I mean, like if I tell people that I'm not a Christ follower, but I am, does it really matter? I mean, come on, if I deny him once, then I'll be able to survive. Otherwise, who knows, he'll kill me. Maybe you don't even really mean it. You just say it to get out of trouble. But is that any less offensive to the one you betrayed? Is it any less offensive to not mean it, but you just denied him? To not really mean it, but I just bow before somebody else. And also, when we give our hearts to things that aren't God, we are robbing God of his rightful worship. Here's the thing. Whether you do it willfully or unwillingly, whenever you bow to something that's not God, you're worshiping something else other than God. If it wasn't a big deal, then Jesus could have rationalized when Satan was like, if you only bow down to me, I'll give you everything. Just worship me. He said that to Jesus because Satan at the time, you know, God had given him some dominion over the land. And he says, look at all the kingdoms, Jesus. If you just compromise a little bit, nobody else is here. No one will even know. We won't even write it in the Bible. Just compromise a little bit and worship me and I'll give you everything. And what did Jesus say? He said, get behind me, Satan. Worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. And so here's the thing. Every single one of us will find ourselves in a time when you have to stand up for the Lord and maybe nobody else is around. And you'll have to ask yourself, will I compromise? Will I bow down or will I stand up for what's right? Will I stand up for the Lord? You're on a train. Some people are doing some shady stuff, things that they shouldn't be doing. And it's like, well, I don't want to interfere. You know, no one wants to interfere in a fight. No one wants to get in trouble. I don't want to ruin anyone's day by telling them they're going to hell or anything like that. So I won't say anything. And listen, at some point you have to ask yourself, what are you afraid of? Who are you compromising towards? Who are you bowing down to? Is it the Lord or are you bowing to somebody else? Saying that their power is greater than the one who gave you life. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so when you worship an idol, you do two things. Number one, you forsake God. You say something else is worthy of worship other than God. And secondly, you're worshiping something that can't give you what you really want anyway. But let me put this in everyday context. So you're probably at this point like, bow down, idols. I, I see the whole North Korea thing. I get that, but I don't, on an everyday basis, maybe, I, maybe you do, but I don't have an idol that I have to bow. To. I'm not like tempted every day to walk outside my house. I'm like, oh, the idol, do I bow down or do I not? So what are the idols in your life that perhaps people will try to make you bow to? Maybe it's alcohol. You're going to be at your first party. You're going off to college and your friends say, hey man, you should try this or you should smoke that stuff or you should try something new or maybe you should flirt around with this girl or that guy and, and maybe get into trouble. I mean, it's only one night and nobody really knows that you're here and you're compromising. You're in a place where your witness is about to go out the window. 
But no one else sees, right? No one else knows. No one else really cares. But God sees and God cares. And every single time we bow towards someone else, we're turning our back on Jesus. He is an all-seeing God. There are other world religions that are trying to bully you into a corner. That are going to tell you things like, listen, you Christians, you believe what? You believe that Jesus is God and, and no one else is God? That's so hypocritical. You know, even though they're judging you, they think that's hypocritical, right? And at one point, are we going to stand up and say, hey, listen, you know, if you, if you want everyone to be able to have their own beliefs, that's fine, but you can't tell me that I can't judge other people's belief and then therefore judge my belief. That's hypocritical. Have, you'll have many peoples and powers that will try to make you bow down to what they worship. Because here's the thing, because everybody else worships something, they want you to recognize the thing they're worshiping is the most valuable thing. People that are successful businessmen and money is their idol, they want you to worship money too. If you worship something else other than money, they'll make them upset. Because that's the thing they've devoted their lives to. People that are scientists and they're every, their entire world is medicine, is science, is all their work, all their success. They want you to worship it too. They want you to affirm them, to understand it. Some people make cars into an idol and they want you to worship and affirm and value their car. It's not enough for them to value and worship it. If you walk by, you touch the car, you slam the door in the wrong way, it's like their world is collapsing. Because you need to know what kind of car this was and you know how much this costs and how much I pay for this. They want you to affirm the thing that they value the most. Jesus did not compromise and we can't comp compromise either because if Jesus stood up for you and I, why, what makes us think that we aren't to stand up for him? Secondly, when we bow to an idol, we blow our witness. Not only when we bow to an idol, we turn our backs on Jesus, but when we bow to an idol, we blow our witness. Here's what I mean by that. Bowing is a position of surrender and submission. You can put up the second slide. Right here is in Bangladesh. You have thousands of Muslims filling the streets, all bowing down in prayer. Now, what if one of those people decided, yeah, I'm not about this life. I'm going to stand up. Here's the problem. They would, they would stand out. And if you're a Christian in that crowd, you can take this slide down. If you're a Christian in that crowd and you bow down, what makes you think that's not going to have an influence on everybody around you? All the other Christians that didn't have the courage, now they're going to sit back down too. They're, they're not going to stand up for the Lord. Think of your influence. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What good is light if it is hidden? What good is the light that we have if you're just going to hide it? I remember there was um, a college professor who was 
showing a video that was very anti-Christian, very anti-Christian. And so I confronted her after class and I told her, I was like, hey, listen, I, I don't mind if you're going to bash Christians. I really, I could care less, but at least you got to show both sides. You can't just mock Christians for entire class and then just leave, leave it without a rebuttal. Let me say something. Let, let somebody say something. And so she was like, oh, I'm really going to think about that. Next class, she like singles me out in front of the entire class and misrepresents my entire position. And she's like, Alan's saying it doesn't matter what you believe, man. There's some Christians that aren't as wacky as the Christians I showed you yesterday. But Christians are like, yeah, whatever you believe, it doesn't matter. I was like, hold on. And I stopped her in the middle of class. I was like, hold on, you weird woman. And I left out the weird. I was just like, I was really frustrated. You know, those of you that actually know me, you know how I can get. And I was snappy. It was probably not the way that you should represent Jesus. But I was like, you're, you're manipulating my words in front of the entire class. And if I don't stand up now... All the kids in the class are going to probably think that, oh, that's probably Alan's position. He doesn't actually have anything worthy or worth saying. If you don't stand up, who will? Are you okay with others remaining in darkness because you refuse to shine the light? Remember, this is a battle. This is not just an idea we have. This is not just a belief that we have. But this is the truth that 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus Christ who actually was God. And not only was he God, but he came into the world not to, to claim dominion over the world, to force people to do things, but he, he himself became a servant. And he was persecuted. He was beaten. He was wounded for our transgressions, for our sins, for our iniquities. And he went to the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to die one day. And that's something we firmly believe in. The reason why we're here on a Friday night. You know, a lot of youth groups, they just hang out and play games. And sometimes I'm like, oh man, we should probably do like more games and stuff. And like, not like I'm against games, but the reason why you're here for the most part probably is because you want to hear the Bible. And you want to hear the word of God. And it's because we believe that this is the most important thing in the universe. And we believe, as I've seen countless times, that the Word of God is able to change people's lives. It doesn't matter if you, like, pick up the Bible and, like, oh, I'm reading a devotion for a half hour, and if I don't read it for a half hour, then it's, it's, not really, it's not really doing anything. It's not true. You read one verse a day, your life will be changed, because that's how powerful the Word of God is. doesn't mean that we shouldn't push ourselves, but what I'm saying is, even a little bit of light in the darkness is enough to draw people's attention. Are you willing to shine the little light that you have? Think about Esther. Remember when all the Jewish people were about to be exterminated? And Mordecai talks to Esther, and Esther's like, I don't know. Should I talk to the king? He might kill me. I don't know. And Mordecai's like, don't you, don't you realize, like, maybe you are here? And maybe, maybe, let's just say that perhaps this whole situation came about and you are placed in this position for such a time as this. Think about that next time. The next time that you have that gut feeling like maybe you should stand up and say something for the Lord. Then just, I don't know, I feel like, oh, that'd be really awkward. I'm just going to, you know, squash it. Just like put it out, forget about it next time. Just not today, I don't feel good. I have a stomach ache. I don't know. Right? We've, the reason why I'm saying that is because I've been there countless times. 
But are you missing out on an opportunity? Do you ever think that God placed you in the position where you are, in the classroom that you're in, in the public school that you're in, in the Christian school that you're in, in the family that you're in, so that you would represent the Lord and be able to shine light in the darkness and see people's lives changed forever? The Bible says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear if no one tells them the good news of Jesus? Romans 10, 14. But maybe you're looking at this like, okay, well, this is not simply being rebuked by your public school teacher. This is life and death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego really were about to die. Let's see what they did in verse 8. It says, Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. Chaldeans were magicians, just so you know. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So they didn't bow down. You know what's really interesting? Did you guys know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were actually not their names? Their real names were actually Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Jewish names. They meant, Hananiah meant beloved by the Lord. It was changed to Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun god. Mishael means who is as God, was changed to Meshach, meaning who is like Venus. Azariah meant the Lord is my help. And his name was changed to Abednego, which meant servant of the god Nego. But here's here's the thing. The world will call you all kinds of things, but God knows who you really are. It does not matter what name people call you, by what name people persecute you. It doesn't matter how people define you. God is the one who created you. And if God created you, it doesn't matter what the world tries to do with you because God is the one who created you and has called you into his purpose. Verse 13, then... Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What do they say? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. 
Wow. That's pretty bold. It's speaking right to the king of Babylon, the king of the known world at that time. And they were able to be bold. You ask yourself, why, why is this guy so angry? Why was Nebuchadnezzar so angry, so furious? And it's like, you know, you can, you can sense the cockiness in him as he's talking to them. But here you have an image of gold. And so many people speculate that it was an image of him or one of the gods. They don't really know, but they make a correlation with Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, if you remember, there was Daniel who interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In his dream, there was a statue. What is the statue made of? Well, the head was of gold, but that's about it. Then you had bronze and you had iron, all different kinds of things uh, symbolizing different empires. And I didn't just make that up. That's actually in the Bible. The different empires that would come after Babylon, Babylon, he was the head of gold. The rest were different empires that would come afterwards. And so it would seem that, we don't know the time span uh, between chapter 2 and 3, but it would seem that Nebuchadnezzar was making a statement by making a giant statue of gold. In other words, what he was saying is, there will be no other kingdom than mine. My kingdom will never end. What he was doing was ignoring the truth. He was denying his own mortality. He was full of himself. He says, I don't care what this prophet says. I don't, say, I don't care what God says. I'm going to last forever. My work will last forever. It's all about me. There's a Greek scientist and philosopher named Empedocles. He was a really smart guy. He actually discovered 450 years before Jesus that light travels at a speed and the earth was a sphere. Really smart guy. Ahead of his time. Here's his problem. He thought he was God. Not only did he believe that he was a God, but to prove himself to skeptics, Empedocles announced that he would jump into a volcano, Mount Etna, and come back alive. So he brought his skeptics all up to this volcano. He's like, you don't understand, guys. I'm a God. I mean, I'm, I'm the smartest man in the world, really. So I'm a God. I'm going to jump at this volcano, come out. He jumps to the volcano and dies. <laughs> that was the end of his life. Can you imagine, like, being one of his followers? Like, yes, we, we know you're a God. He jumps in. He's like, he's going to come out. He's, he's definitely going to come out soon. He's not. Okay, we need a different God now. He was full of himself. He was delusional, we would call him. Now, maybe we should put ourselves not in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but actually in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar. Are we making images and looking for people's worship? Are we full of, uh, uh, full of ourselves? And you can tell by how people listen to criticism about themselves. Empedocles, for, for instance, might have been a person that you tell them, like, listen, you're, you're crazy. Oh, you're just one of those haters. You just turn them off, you know. How do you handle criticism? Today in our world, we can edit our online image and be a different person. And like maybe you've met friends before and you're like, hopefully you haven't met them online, but you see them in person. Like, oh, you're just like completely different. I didn't realize you looked like that. Like maybe you have some classes with some people and you kind of look them up. Like, who's my roommate? Then you see them in person. Like, oh, you're just not what I expected. That's all. I'm just surprised. I'm surprised that you look different. It's because we can edit our profiles and put the maximum, you know, have the posts that have the maximum likes, put our maximum age on Facebook. We're 99 years old. I don't know. You do things to make yourself look good. And when everybody does things that you don't like, you, you can just kind of edit that out. We've become 
editors of our own reality. But are we only thriving on affirmation from people? Do we need to always win, to always succeed, always have the right answer? Or are you okay with being wrong? Are you okay with other people telling you things that hurt? Because it's a fool that doesn't heed correction. It's a wise man that is open to it. But here, let's focus and hone in as we close to these last couple of verses. So what, what did he answer? In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, listen, God is able to serve us, uh, to deliver us rather from the burning fire furnace, and he will de deliver us, O king. Verse um, 18, it says, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. But if not. Can you say that with me? But if not. One more time. But if not. Here's the thing. Having faith in God does not mean that you believe God will do what he can. It means that you believe God will do what he wills. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had profound faith in God. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't serve you. We know you're not really God. We know that you don't really have any power. You can throw us in the fiery furnace and God will deliver us. But if not, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't want to, we're never going to serve you. Do you have the but if not kind of faith? Where it's not just believing that God will do what he can, but believing that God will do as he wills. You know, even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here's the problem. And, and let me explain for a second. This is so important. So hone in, pay attention. If this is the only thing you get out of the Bible study, it's worth it. Ready? So many of us are praying for God to answer specific prayers. God, please, I know you can heal my uncle. Lord, I, pr I pray, I know you can save this person. Lord, I know you can make me well again. And then when it doesn't happen, sometimes some people lose their faith. Some people are discouraged forever. And I've, I've spoken to people. I evangelize all the time. I mean, I haven't evangelized in like three weeks, but still. I do it frequently enough to talk to a lot of bitter people. A lot of people say, you know what? I prayed and he never answered. God never spoke to me. He never healed my sister. And what do you say to people like that? Those of you that went to Atheism and ISIS the other day with us, we reviewed a DVD uh, that's entitled, Why Doesn't God Heal Amputees? And here's an atheist who's very proud and he has this viral video and he says, well, you guys believe that God answers prayers and you believe that God heals cancer and all these different things. Well, if that's true, why doesn't God heal amputees? Surely he can do it. You know, it can't be that hard for God to grow a limb back, but it's never happened, and so therefore God doesn't exist. Well, here's the problem. Here's the whole entire problem with that entire thought. We are believing in God based on if he listens to us. Well, that's pretty presumptuous, isn't it? If you only believe in God based on what he does for you, then you're not really believing in God, you're believing in yourself. It's not a matter of, can God do it? The question is, does God want to do it? Will God do it? And here's what we have to believe. Our faith can't be based in answers of prayers. 
We have to place our, our faith in a person. And you, if you place your faith in a person, you'll trust that whatever they decide is good if they're trustworthy, right? If, I, if I'm trusting that someone is going to help me out, maybe I'm stuck on the side of the road, I call somebody, I'm like, hey man, I, I need you to pick me up. Can you drive over here and pick me up? I hang up the phone and I trust they're gonna get there unless they're not trustworthy. Now, if it takes them a little bit longer than what I thought, I trust he has good reasons why he's not there yet. I'm not going to back him like, oh, this is why I can't trust anybody. No, if I really trust somebody, I'm not going to deny his existence. Did that phone call really go through? I don't really know because I called him and he's not here yet. What you're going to do is you're going to, if you trust somebody, you're going to expect they have sufficient reasons for not doing what you want. And so our faith has to be in God, not into answers of prayers. And we can talk about that in a different Bible study. But do we have a but if not kind of faith? In Mark chapter 9, there's a demon-possessed boy who was falling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, throwing himself into the water, throwing himself into fires. This guy was completely, who had this son, he was completely at his wit's end. He came up to Jesus and said, Lord, we've tried. We've had your disciples, your followers have tried to cast out this demon and nothing's worked. And this guy, is, this boy is, is still foaming at the mouth. He's still hurting himself. I don't know what to do anymore. If you can, Jesus, if you can do anything, can you please save him? You know what Jesus says back to him? If I can do anything, if I can do anything, anything is possible to him who believes. It's not a matter of if God can. The question is, does God will? And if you have that in the back of your mind, the next time you're discouraged, it'll change your entire perspective because you're holding on to God's promises. You worked back your logic. So it's now, it's now it's not like, oh, I don't know if God exists. It's like, okay, well, I look up at the stars and I know God exists. Okay, I look at the Bible. I know it's the word of God. Okay, I've seen God change lives. I know God is real. I know that Jesus is God. Okay, therefore, he must have sufficient reasons why he's not answering this because God's word says, all things work together for good to those that love God and to those that are called according to his purpose. In some weird way, even though I don't understand it, I know that God has this under control. God will deliver us, but if not, we're still gonna do what we do. We're still never gonna bow down to these idols. So verse 19, finishing this up, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Kind of ironic that the strongest people he had, his mighty men, were the ones that died. And as we're going to find out, these three Israelite guys survived. Then King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 24 was astonished, and he rose in haste and said, and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, and the administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Here's how thorough God's protection was of these men. They didn't even smell like fire. We go outside and have a bonfire. I, I smell like smoke for days. And these men didn't even have the smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amidst the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Okay, that's kind of drastic. And their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Wow, what a drastic turn of events. This guy was obviously a hothead. <laughs> that was bad. All right. Let's, let's all draw to a close. Know that sometimes you, you might question, Lord, why are you putting me in this fire? Why am I under this trial? Why is this happening to me? Know that Jesus is right there in the midst of the trial. Hear the angel of the Lord. We don't know if this is a Christophany, meaning Jesus in the Old Testament, or it's simply Nebuchadnezzar making a statement where he says, it looks like the Son of God. But here's what we do know. It doesn't matter because Jesus was there. And the next time that you're discouraged, you're down, you're weary, you feel like you're going to bow down, you don't know what to do, you're going to compromise. Know that God is right there with you in the midst of that fire, of that trial. And so just as with Elijah, we talked about on Sunday, that we must speak out for the name of Jesus, we must also not compromise by bowing down to the idols around us. Whether it's self-idolatry, and we're always concerned about what people think about us, or it's idolatry, in other words, we're looking for something other than God to save us from our misery. I'm going to close with this verse. It says in Isaiah chapter 53, that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. In other words, who is willing to stand in the fires of persecution knowing that Jesus is there? What person amongst us? You're about to go to school. About to go into another round. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. You're going to have friends. You're going to have people wanting to bring you down, discourage you. But who is willing to stand even if everybody else bows, knowing that Jesus is right there standing beside you? Knowing that Jesus stood on a cross for your name so that it would be written in the book of life. And so we are to stand for the name of Jesus because there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Let's pray.